welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Ziba Khan. She is an internationally renowned Ayurvedic clinician, meditation teacher, energy healer, and motivational speaker. She uses holistic treatment to restore her patients' mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual health and to prevent disease and disorders. In particular, she focuses on healing trauma, which often leads to anxiety, depression, feelings of loss, and low self-esteem. Welcome. Thank you, Tom. And Zeba, thank you very much for being on the show. And I'm just meeting Zeba for the first time. And as I was talking to Zeba before we started, I'm a surgeon, and for 30-some years, I just thought meditation, energy, et cetera, whatever. And turns out their world has actually quite a bit more data for what they're doing compared to what I'm do- what I was doing. And so a lot of my process has really gone over into this world. There's actually lots of physiology behind what she's doing. So she's very experienced. She's focused on, she focused on healing trauma which often leads to anxiety, depression, feelings of loss, and low self-esteem, which you also now know are basically physiological states. And she's also presented month-long workshops to corporate clients, including some well-known global leaders, and also the meditation and yoga workshops at schools internationally to incorporate wellness education into their curriculum. She's also a leading practitioner with Mind Valley's Sylvana Meditation app. In 2020, she was honored by an invitation to be part of a live interactive session hosted by His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, on the topic of integrated healthcare and compassion. So Ziba, welcome to the show. And this is a very, very timely topic, as you well know. And so, and she lives in Singapore. So it's pretty warm there, right? You said 85 degrees? It is. It's early morning and it's 85 right now. Thanks so much for having me, David. I really appreciate it. And Tom, too. Thank you. So I'm interested just in your background, how you came or have you always lived in Singapore? Is that where you were raised? No. So I was actually raised in the U.S. and Southeast Asia. Um, okay. My dad's in oil. And so we moved around a lot during the 70s and 80s, uh, back and forth. And Texas and California were always our home bases in the U.S. Okay. Uh, but my parents were immigrants to the US. My father is ethnically Indian, and my mother is ethnically from a Turkish tribe from Iran. Okay. And both of those cultures view the kitchen as the pharmacy, basically. Okay. They have different systems, uh, and they use what's indigenous to their own lands. But the concept is the same. Someone in the house falls ill, you go out to the garden maybe, or you go to the kitchen and just begin brewing or using the herbs and spices and foods that are already in the house. Okay. And so that's what I grew up in. No matter what country we lived in, it was, my parents never quite had this concept of, oh my goodness, one of the kids have fallen sick, let's run to the GP or you know, let's go out because sometimes we were in underdeveloped nations when we were in Southeast Asia. Okay. You didn't necessarily know what the standard of care was going to be if you went to an allopathic doctor. 
So okay. it was also beneficial sometimes to, to start off at home. And if things got really bad and, you know, Western medicines were needed, and there is a place for Western medicine, of course, right. then they'd take us to the doctor or go to the doctor themselves. But that was kind of the philosophy around illness in my home growing up, no matter where we lived in the world. It was you employ what's at home first. And if that's too weak or it's not taking effect as quickly as you'd like it to, then we'll go to the doctor outside. Could you expand on the sentence that you just said that the kitchen is medicine, a medicine cabinet? Because sure. so, I think the opposite. We look at food as sort of a something that we spend as little time as possible so we can have enough fuel to get through the day. And it's not a, the healthiest at a relationship with food, I'll have to admit, but I'm yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, in Indian culture, and I'm trained in Ayurveda, there is a saying that if medicine, if food is good, medicine is of no need. Okay. And we, we take that saying very seriously because especially in India, food is medicine. You eat to stay healthy. Okay. You don't just eat what's quickest to eat because you don't have time to cook. In the East, it's very much an ultra-processed food culture now. Okay. Cooking at home is not done so often anymore. It's very much a fast food culture. But in India, especially traditionally, you ate to stay healthy. You didn't eat just because you were hungry. But what you ate and how you ate it and what quantity you ate it at what time of day you ate it, even with whom you ate it, all had an impact on your health. Wow, that's fantastic. Um, so can you give us a little sampling of what, just roughly over the course of a week, what might, what some of the meals might look like or some food was? And we say how you ate it, I'm assuming slowly or slower than we do. Yes, yes. So Ayurveda is very, very specific in what it prescribes. So it actually says every mouthful. I mean, if you want to get really, really detailed, every mouthful um, that you that you ingest should be chewed 32 times okay. before you swallow. Okay. Because that results in optimal digestion. Right. So there's, there's so much nuance to Ayurveda. Um, to answer your question about, you know, what the course of meals would look like over a week, I'd have to go back to the roots of Ayurveda, which is what is a person's dosha? What's their mind, body, spirit composition? Because Ayurveda is 100% individualized. Okay. And so what is ultra healthy for you, David, might actually be toxic to my system because I have great difficulty digesting it naturally. Right. So perhaps bell peppers are great for you, but they make me feel gassy and bloated. Okay. Uh, but there are some commonalities across the three mind, body, spirit compositions in Ayurveda. The first one is that our digestive fire is highest between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. Okay. So that's the window within which we want to have our largest meal of the day. Okay. We also, like you said, want to eat slowly. Because How slowly. Well, we don't think, want because that to... word for a surgeon just gave me a little bit of indigestion, so I guess. To... 
we're all in a rush these days, right? We're all in a rush, and Never. that's the truth. You know, right. and who doesn't multitask anymore? You got your phone in one hand, you got your fork in the other. It's a matter of slowing ourselves down for a couple reasons. Number one, so that we can be mindful of the quantity of food that we're eating. And number two, so that we can really register when we're full and we don't end up overeating. Because one of the things that Ayurveda says is ideally, you leave your stomach one third empty to aid in digestion. So you don't fill it to the max and then stop and then feel bloated later or stuffed or lethargic or feel like you need a pick me up of, you know, usually something um, carb related later in the day. So you wanna be mindful of how much you're eating. And if you slow down the pace at which you're eating, you're better able to be mindful of the portion and also the speed of what you're eating. The other thing is um, you want to eat with people who don't upset you. You can have a neutral relationship to them. You wanna eat with people who don't upset you. The reason being that everything is energy. And if you are upset and you have a lot of cortisol rushing through your system or you're sad or you're depressed or angry, you're going to have indigestion resulting from that meal. And so if you're in a spat with someone, you don't want to sit across the dining table from them and have breakfast with them because that's going to affect your digestion as well as the absorption of the nutrients from the meal you just had. You're more inclined to have constipation and diarrhea when you eat with someone who upsets you. Right. Because you're absorbing that negative emotional energy that's between the two of you. Another thing that Ayurveda says across the three mind, body, spirit compositions is have gratitude for the meal before you you consume it. Because you also infuse it with positive energy in that regard. Pause. Give gratitude for everyone who helped to bring that meal in front of you, you know, from the birds to the farmers to the seeds to the truck drivers to to the people in the grocery store or the farmer's market or the wet market or the supermarket, you know, who put the items out to the cashier who might have checked you out to everyone along the way, including the person who cooked it. Right. So give gratitude for what you have. Be grateful. And especially, you know, this is coming from an India. This is coming, this tradition is coming from India, which has traditionally been a land of poverty. So having food is a big deal. Right. You know, you don't gulp it down because you don't necessarily know when you're going to get your next meal or if it's going to be this large. So giving gratitude is something that's very, very deeply ingrained in Indian culture, giving gratitude for food. Can I want to unpack this a little bit because there's lots of neuroscience now that actually backs up exactly what you said. So I find it pretty remarkable that the essence of chronic disease, mental and physical, is sustained threat physiology or sustained fight or flight, which includes adrenaline, cortisol, noradrenaline, histamines, and inflammatory cytokines. Metabolism's up, inflammatory markers are up. So the research shows that actually gratitude is anti-inflammatory. Social connection is anti-inflammatory. Just the diet itself is anti-inflammatory. And the approach that we've learned, I have a model called dynamic healing. We look at your circumstances or threats. 
and they look at your nervous system as either calm or hyperactive or hyper um, vigilant. You look at the physiology, which is the output. So what you're discussing here with the diet, we discuss that in terms of, you know, as a good diet is anti-inflammatory, so your nervous system is less reactive. So you don't have that hyper reactive response to stress. So diet makes a big difference. And we've also learned that it's just the whole process. So you just combine about four major topics. So we always think healing is multifactorial because people are complicated, disease is complicated. So right there in just five minutes, you covered about a significant part of the healing process. So I'm curious, going backwards, what's the origins of your practices? How long has it been around? How did it arise? How much is it practiced in your country? Of course, you're in Singapore now, you're not in India, but um, is it, does it, well, quick question, are you, is it practiced in Singapore or just an approach you happen to bring into people around you or is this more of a purely Indian tradition? Where did this all originate? So it's originally Indian. It's okay. an ancient Indian science. Ayurveda is a compound word and it translates into English as the science of life. And at its core, it's really a science about how to live a healthy life filled with well-being. And at secondary purposes, in the event that you should fall ill, here are the treatments for your disease or imbalance as per your dosha, your mind, body, spirit composition. So as I mentioned earlier, there are three doshas in Ayurveda and we can get to them in more detail later. But say we have three people standing in front of us. Each of them have a different primary dosha, but they all have diabetes. Each of them will receive a different treatment. What was the word you just used? Three different what? Doshas. D-O-S-H-A. And, and what is that exactly? Dosha is the mind, body, spirit composition of a person. Okay. And we diagnose that in Ayurveda through the pulse. Uh, we take three pulses off the wrist and we can diagnose a person's dosha. Or, um, you know, your listeners can go to my website or a lot of different websites on the net. We'll have a dosha quiz that they can take and self-diagnose. Okay. And just really quick, um, what is your website? We'll put it up in the show notes, but just to, what is your website? The website is Zeba, Z-E-E-B-A, healing.com. And I've got a free dosha quiz there that, that your listeners can take and, and learn so much about themselves, David. It's so empowering once you know your dosha, because once you know your dosha, you also discover what you're prone to developing as far as disease and imbalance goes. And you can prevent yourself from going down that path because just because certain ailments, um, just because you're predisposed to developing certain ailments does not mean that you're predestined to end up there. Okay. So it's very empowering to know your dosha. Uh, getting back to your question about whether Ayurveda is really practiced in Singapore, it is, but given that we're in Southeast Asia, and the population in Singapore is over 70% Chinese. When people practice uh, more, I know it's called alternative medicine, but here we call it 
traditional medicine. When they practice traditional medicine here, they tend to turn to traditional Chinese medicine, to TCM. The Indian population in Singapore is smaller, and so it's not as popular. But of course, you know, people from all ethnicities will sign up for different healing modalities right. and different medicinal techniques. So Zebra, were you raised in this tradition or is this something you evolved into or something that's evolved over time? I'm just curious where you are at and how you got there. So I have been blessed with a very, very rich upbringing, not only moving so much growing up uh, between North America and different parts of Asia, uh, you know, but as a child, you it's fascinating to move so drastically like that you know cultures are so drastically different because you you're exposed to all kinds of things and you realize from a very young age that there's no one right way to really do anything there's no one right way to eat to pray to live to cook um there's no one right way necessarily to be there are many many right ways and this impacted me greatly my parents are both Muslim and I am Muslim also, but with my mother being Persian, she actually taught me religion through the poetry of Rumi and Saadi and Hafiz. So it wasn't so much dogma, but there was always this emphasis on love and oneness and right. universality, right? right? And so wherever we lived in the world, wherever my dad got transferred to on his next project, whether it was a predominantly Christian country or Jewish country or Hindu country or Muslim country or Buddhist country or Taoist country, it really made no difference to me. And I embraced the different cultures and practices and as a kid right you make friends in school and you're invited over for their religious holidays and you're exposed to so much richness in the world and so what i learned from a very young age i remember thinking this before i was eight years old is that there's no one right way to access a higher power everyone right. seems to believe in this higher power that exists outside of us whether they call it God or Christ or Buddha or Krishna or Ganesh or whatever it might be. Most people tend to believe in a higher power outside us. And when they're really worried and really stressed and they really need help, they will always call on this higher power. Right. And they'll do it in different forms. They might kneel, they might prostrate on the ground, they might um, cup their hands when they pray, or they might clasp them together when they pray. It makes no difference, but they all do it. And I was just fascinated by that. And prayer and surrender to a higher power is one of the four integral components of Ayurveda. And this, this concept of religion or surrendering to a higher power really impacted me from a young age. In addition to my parents being Muslim and me having the Sufi upbringing, which really embraced the oneness of humanity right. and developing a direct connection to a higher power rather than going through an intermediary. I was also blessed to have um, a godfather who was actually a Hindu Brahmin priest. Wow. Yes. And he really, really shaped my upbringing tremendously. And he also not only taught me about Hinduism in, in tremendous depth, but he also taught me about embracing all kinds of people. And not only from different cultures and backgrounds and religions, 
but all kinds of people as far as social status went and the rich and the poor went and the educated and uneducated went because India, um, unfortunately, even to this day can be extremely classist and racist against their own. Right. And, you know, he taught me, you don't need to go outside your borders, no matter what country you're in, you don't ever need to go outside to encounter ugliness of a people you know you can look at how they treat one another within their nation's borders to see how nasty people can be to one another right uh and this this impacted me tremendously you know how people think why are we so cruel to each other why do we desire to hurt each other sometimes why do we not race embrace the differences because i grew up david predominantly being part of the other i was always the minority no matter where we lived uh, and I always felt like the foreigner, no matter where we lived, because while the benefit of moving around was that I was exposed to the rich tapestry of humanity and culture, the disadvantage was I didn't really have roots. Right. Oh, and yeah, so it's, you know, it was a fascinating juxtaposition growing up and my only real roots that gave me grounding or my personal connection to a higher power and that was really it right well i have to spend some time unpacking the thing so you just really describe the essence of the entire healing journey and the body knows how to heal if you just allow it to heal and when you're angry anxious frustrated judgmental vindictive your brain actually becomes inflamed so half your brain is what's called the glial cells which have inflammatory cytokine receptors on them so when you're upset, your brain actually is inflamed. Then these thought patterns come flying out, which inflames it even more. Then the essence of chronic disease, mental and physical, is sustained stress or threat physiology. And the essence of healing is safety physiology. And what you described covered a tremendous amount of ground. So on our second podcast, we'll do it here in a few minutes. Um, I'd like to have you walk us through what you take a given person through. But again, um, I'm excited about what you're having to say. It's really, really, I mean, essentially it took me 40 years to come to some of the same conclusions you have almost exactly word for word. And I'm sort of shocked, again, coming from a surgical background, how powerful the work you're doing is. And it's not subtle. People actually heal. And then in the United States, you're running a disease model not, or an illness model, not a wellness model. And we're actually actively hurting people in America with our intervention. So Anyway, I'm excited about what you're doing and any final words for us and also how to access what you do? I think the one bit of advice that I would give to people would be that, you know, as you mentioned, healing is multifaceted and it's not just about diet. It's right. not just about your supplements. But the one thing that I've found that, that always helps no matter what is surrendering to a higher power. Right. You know, of course, change your diet, of course, get your labs done, of course, get blood drawn, you know, run the numbers, see where your micronutrients are, what your nutrition panel looks like, take whatever you're deficient in to bring your body to balance and whatnot. But doing, cleaning up your diet and having more physical movement and taking supplements is not enough. Because right. as you mentioned earlier, those things do not activate, they'll, they'll reduce inflammation but they will not necessarily activate the parasympathetic nervous system. Right. And for that, we need something more, whether that's prayer or that's meditation or it's both. 
right. you know, they have different functions, as you very well know, and the science shows that as well. But there needs to be this stress reduction, this element of stress reduction from a purely Western standpoint. That's what it is, stress management, stress reduction, activating, rest, relax, relax, uh, rest, relax, digest, and healing. Right. And so if prayer works better for you, do it in whatever shape or form that it resonates with you. If meditation works best for you, do that. You know, if you're if you really like both of them, like I said, they have different purposes. In Ayurveda, we say that prayer is speaking to a higher power and meditation is listening to the higher power. So one is active, the other one's more passive. Right. Uh, And as we meditate, we also strengthen our intuition. Yeah, and that helps to guide us throughout throughout life as we make choices on a day to day basis because we become more present. So that's really the one big piece of advice I would give to people is manage your stress through meditation and or prayer. And there are hundreds of forms of meditation. You do not have to sit in lotus position in a quiet room with a candle lit, some incense going. You don't need all that stuff. Right. You can chant, you can be silent, you can have music playing. You don't have to chant anything in Sanskrit. If you already follow a particular religion, sometimes people ask me, Ziba, I'm Greek Orthodox. I, I don't want to chant something in Sanskrit because I'm afraid that's going to make me Hindu or it's a Hindu practice. I don't want to do it. I tell them you don't have to. Recite your favorite verse from the Bible. I mean, pick whatever it is. You know, your favorite line from the Torah, whatever it might be, pick it and go with that. It's all about bringing you peace. Right. Absolutely. And you also have an app. Did I see that correctly? The Mind Valley's Silvana meditation app. Is that your app or what is that? No. So that is owned by Mind Valley. I am one of their many meditation teachers. Okay. And the way that I approach meditation for their app is very, uh, very much from a traditional Ayurvedic perspective. And so my meditations in that regard are quite different from other people because I just go with that traditional perspective. Uh, But, you know, sign up for any app. You know, if you don't know how to meditate and you feel that you need guidance, sign up for any app that brings you peace and go with it and just start with a minute a day. That's all you need. And as you strengthen your muscle and, you know, you feel that you're able to sit or stand or lie down more comfortably for an extended period of time, then extend your period of meditation. That's all it is. You don't have to sit on the first try for 20 minutes and then say, I can't do this. This is not for me and give up. And final quick question, are you seeing people, patients? Do you actually, are you in practice? I am in practice. I just closed my private practice at the medical center here just before COVID hit. And then I went purely, via telehealth is how I see my patients now. Perfect. So she's at, is it zebahealth.com is your website? Zebahealing.com. Close. (laughs) And uh, I'm excited to get to meet you and you have some huge resources here. So thank you very much for being on our show. Thank you, David. I'd like to thank our guest, Zeba Khan, for being on the show today and for sharing with us how her family background and her training in Ayurvedic medicine helped shape her clinical practice. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com. 
Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.